Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed, the channel where Eastern skepticism, uh, sorry, where Eastern religion meets Western skepticism. Today I've got Dr. Graham Oppie and Dr. Howard Resnick on for discussion, uh, not on an intelligent design. I haven't changed that image yet. Uh, and so we'll get right into it. So Dr. Graham Oppie is a philosophy professor at Monash University who specializes in philosophy of religion, and he's coming from the atheist side. And Dr. Howard Resnick is in the, the Harry Krishna, the theist camp. And so we'll be bringing a different flavor to the problem of evil debates, because usually it's uh, philosophy of religion means philosophy of Christianity. So today we have an Eastern flavor. So this should be a little interesting. The Eastern perspective brings a slightly different um, aspect to the problem of evil. And we'll launch right into it. So guys, thanks for coming on. And um, so, Graham, would you like to start by fleshing out the problem of evil? Um, in some ways, it might be better if Howard started, if it's going to have a, if the, the <laughs> kind of question takes a slightly different flavour. I'm happy to start, but what I'll give you is a kind of um, a, a kind of discussion, the way it gets discussed um, right. in the context of Christianity. And yeah, you can go. Uh, yeah, for something different, maybe we want yeah. to go. Oh, oh I, I think that um, the problem of evil, as far as I know, has mostly been articulated in Western philosophical circles. And I, I read up on it a bit today in, you know, different sources. And I think it's pretty much the same universal principles. So I'd be happy for you to. Yeah. Okay. So um, <laughs> there are different ways in which philosophers have thought that um, considerations about evil make problems for theistic belief. And um, this is particularly the case in those theistic traditions that take um, the divine being to have um, a set of properties, um, typically including omnipotence, omniscience and perfect goodness. Uh, so a uh, way back Epicurus argued that there's a kind of conflict between the existence of evil and the existence of a divine being that has those three properties. And many subsequent formulations of um, arguments from evil have added to the properties that are thought to together make the problem. So often in versions in presentation of arguments from evil, it's also supposed that the divine being is creator as well, and so has some kind of causal responsibility for what's going on, as well as being omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good. Okay. The way that there's thought to be a problem here is of two kinds. One kind is logical. It's thought that there's just a logical inconsistency. Uh, that's the way that Epicurus's argument is often interpreted, so that the idea is that it's just logically impossible that there's an omnipotent, um, omniscient, perfectly good being, given that there's evil. But the other way that um, these kinds of discussions go is not that it's a logical problem, but it's an evidential problem. So the thought is that um, the the nature and the kinds of distribution of evil in the world is evidence that there that the world wasn't created by an omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good being. So the first kind of argument 
typically gets called logical argument from evil, the latter kind gets called evidential argument from evil. Amongst contemporary Christian philosophers in the United States, uh, the kind of standard view, I think, is that uh, logical arguments from evil have been thoroughly defeated. Uh, there's no prospect of successfully defending one of those. There's a small cohort of um, philosophers of religion still working away at logical arguments from evil. So Michael Tooley is one example, and um, Jim Sturber, James Sturber is another, and there are a few others. The view amongst um, contemporary Christian philosophers of religion in the United States is that uh, the evidential arguments from evil are not doing very well either. Uh, it's not that there's a consensus on the reply, but there's a lot of people who think that uh, some kind of sceptical theism provides a satisfactory response to um, evidential arguments from evil. But you'll certainly find uh, more people arguing that um, evidential arguments from evil still have some legs that they haven't been completely defeated as of yet. Uh, is that enough by way of um, introduction <laughs> to, the, to the topic? Yeah, that works. P perhaps it's worth mentioning, I've heard uh, Dr. Ravi Gupta, who's a Hare Krishna, who's quite academically qualified in this field, say that um, the debate in Eastern circles has taken a different flavor. And, and in the West, it's behavioral. Why isn't God behaving properly? Uh, and in the East, the debate has been ontological. How can God be pure? Or how can, you know, th this world which seems impure just seems to have all this nastiness, how can that come from something which is all good and all pure? So it's, it's, it's a different debate. So perhaps, Howard, you'd like to start by commenting on that and then move from there. Um, to be honest, I, I'm not really following contemporary... South Asian uh, contributions in this field. Oh, no, that was the um, traditional debates, like around uh, Advaita, you know, the Advaita view and Madhva. Oh, right, right. Um, the problem of evil is not prominent, I think, in a lot of the, it may be mentioned in passing, but, but in the, um, as speaking now as a historian, I would say that um, without wanting to offend anyone, but I think the kind of religion, the kind of marriage of church and king or throne and the types of just, you know, violence we've seen and, and, and anyway, I won't go into all the history, but um, I think that there has, uh, there has been resistance to theism in Asia but I think it hasn't been as determined, as systematic, as um, as perhaps in the West. And so um, I think what I'd like to do is talk about, I think it might be more fruitful rather than talking about the occasional uh, references to the problem of evil, which never really occupied center stage say in the Sanskrit tradition. 
I think what's I think what's more interesting is something which does occupy center stage in a sense, and that is the reasons why it didn't become such a big issue. I mean, because because it's not a big issue. So I think the reasons why it didn't become such a big issue are in a sense more central to trying to grasp the tradition. And uh, in a word, karma. It's interesting. Um, you know, there, I'm, there are, you know, well, well over a billion people that think that's a good explanation. But in the in Wikipedia's article on uh, theodicy, they, they listed karma as one of the minor sort of insignificant responses to the problem, which I thought was amusing. But anyway, um, so here's a, I'd like to put out a proposition, which I've used for my own understanding, because even though I'm a, you know, so-called believer, I take the issue seriously, and I, I didn't kind of leave my brain at the door when I decided to take up a spiritual practice, and so I do think about it. And for me, for me to accept a god or any other person as a perfect moral agent, um, it's necessary for me that, um, assuming that person that that has power over other beings. It could be it could be a parent over a child. It could be God over everybody else. So I think in more general terms, in order for someone who has power over other conscious living beings to be considered a perfect moral agent, it must be the case that when that person uses their power to instigate or to allow uh, suffering to any of those creatures, that it be the minimum suffering necessary to achieve an essential good. I mean, just to give a very simple example, when I was a kid, my father took me to get a vaccination. That's maybe the wrong, the wrong example nowadays. But anyway, my father took me to get a vaccination. I must have been about like five years old, my older brother. And so they called him first and I, I could see they, they took him into a room. They took his pants down. They took out the needle and I just ran for it. And my father had to run after me and pick me up, put me on his shoulder and take me back. And so there's a case where a very loving parent, I was blessed with very good parents, a very loving parent subjected me to a certain pain and discomfort for an obvious higher good, you know, for my health. And so, and I think according to the science at that time, that was the least invasive, least painful way to achieve that essential good. So therefore, in a sense, for me to argue that God or Krishna, as we call him, whatever name, uh, is a perfect moral agent, I would have to give a reasonable case. I mean, in my own life, reasonable to me, to myself, I would have to come up with a reasonable case that God is, despite the really the horrible suffering in this world, and it's, I'm not really blasé about it, it really, it really is horrible. But it would have to be the case that that's the minimum suffering possible to bring about an essential good for the person suffering. So I'll stop there for now. Okay. Um, I'd like to ask a question about this because it seems important, though. Um, on the view that you're describing, you're not thinking about God as creator of the universe. So you're not thinking of... Uh, or or are you thinking? Yes, yes, as as because, as a, because you might think that the that the universe is kind of 
eternal, uncreated, and um, then the problem of evil and, and also that kind of the structure of um, karma and the kind of um, cycle of rebirth is all just built in and it's kind of independent of the divine being. That would make, seems to me, would make the picture look rather different. So that's why I wanted to ask whether... Yeah, very good point. And uh, that is very relevant. And yes, in my conception, God is ultimately the creator working through agents in different ways, but ultimately, you know, the buck stops with God for the way the world is. At least the system. I mean, if I do something bad and I suffer for it, that's not God. But as far as the way the system was built, yes, that's God. So because the, depending what's given, the, the idea that, um, that, you know, you're, you're allowing the minimum amount of evil to obtain some kind of good takes a different picture. If I th- It might take a slightly different complexion if you're thinking that God gets to choose what, what the structure of evils and goods is going to be rather than there being all this stuff that's kind of given already. And one of the things that always puzzled me, and so I'm thinking about this in the Western tradition, but I'm guessing that it's going to apply in your case as well, is why, given that God was God's perfect and given that God's the creator, evil ever gets into the picture, right? Because it <laughs> seems that as soon as that happens, things have got worse, right? Okay. Just overall, because things were perfect and now they're not. Uh, and so I find that sort of puzzling. And I was thinking, at least on some versions of um, Eastern religions, you would avoid that problem because it's not that you have a starting point where you've just got the perfect being. Right. Good question. Um, first of all, the idea that there could be a God who was a thoroughly nice guy or girl or whatever, but that the universe just kind of runs under its own steam. Um, yes and no, it, it, in this sense. There's, there's an interesting verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, that Krishna says, I don't take responsibility for anyone's good or evil actions. And so um, the universe is, is on this view, I think, that I am presenting a neutral arena. So, for example, let's say you buy a car and you drive it safely and don't have accidents or someone, not you, but someone drives drunk or drives recklessly and, and does have a serious accident. So if the car is basically a safe car, the uh, the person who drove recklessly can't sue the manufacturer because it was a reckless driving that caused it. So as far as why there's evil at all, which you, you mentioned, um, this is something I, I think Plantiga mentioned. I'm not an expert on Plantiga, the importance of free will. And so we do have free will, thank God. I mean, I can't imagine what a horrible thing would be not to have free will because I, I value so much my individuality and my freedom. And um, 
So we have free will and there are consequences to our actions. Another point I think that should be brought in just to fill out the the worldview, as they say in Spanish, I think the cosmo vision. So they say worldview. It's kind of a little bigger. Is that um, we are looking at sort of a little slice of life here on the earth. And the this Bhagavata view or Vaishnava view is very much not geocentric. In a sense, I think that even though we've gotten beyond, let's say, in astronomy geocentrism, there is a type of geocentrism in the approach to this issue. And so if we look at the whole universe, which on this Vaishnava view is uh, inhabited in many, many places, it's a very big thing. And also in this earth, this is considered to be sort of the, the nastiest age. Agreeing, of course, with um, Homer and um, oh, who's the other guy? Not Homer, but the other one. Works in days. Oh, my God. Uh, Hesiod. Yeah, Hesiod. That was not age-related, by the way. Yeah, if you look at Homer and Hesiod and actually other ancient Greeks, they had the idea with the same imagery of a golden age, a silver age, a I guess a Bronze Age and then an Iron Age. So this being the Iron Age. So yes, we do have free will and we are responsible for our actions. I'll just throw in one more point that I was reading today. I didn't want to, you know, completely embarrass myself in this discussion. So I was reading in Stanford Encyclopedia Philosophy in different plays, different kinds of theodicies and different articulations of the problem of evil. And uh, personally, just me, uh, I find these things like, well, it's not logically impossible. There's all this suffering, but uh, there's also a God or that God doesn't interfere or that the suffering is not really suffering. Those things kind of bounce off me. I mean, I just, I, I find those things very unsatisfying. And I need, in order for me to be sort of, you could say a theist, in order for me to be a committed theist, I personally need an explanation that, that is reasonable to me and that we don't have a God where he's not paying attention or just doesn't care that much or could do better but doesn't, or at least it's not a logical contradiction. I mean, none of that would drag me into a religious life. And so what I need is a real uh, defensible ethic on the part of God. Okay, so... I mean, given that kind of constraint, I can say at least three different theodicies that are kind of still open to you. So one of them you've already mentioned is a kind of free will theodicy, and I'll come back and say some more about that in a minute. Another one is the kind of John Hick um, soul-making theodicy. So there the idea is that, I mean, and you seem committed to this anyway, that there are certain kinds of goods that are really good that you can't have unless there are evils. Now, I'll pick a, an example that you might not think is sufficient, but you can't overcome obstacles unless there are obstacles. And part of what makes life worth living is overcoming obstacles, right? So, uh, and you can fill that out. Uh, and the third thing, which, uh, which you can say, but it might not quite fit with everything that you wanted, is just that, God's much smarter than us, and <laughs> why we expect to know why um, God uh, allows 
the amounts and kinds of suffering that there are because God's perfectly good and omnipotent and omniscient. God's got reasons and there's no reason why in this life we should expect to have access to them. Uh, so that would give you, it seems to me that all of those would fit with your, I don't, I mean, just saying that God doesn't care, right? That's, that's you know, they're sort of consistent with excluding all of those things. Yes. Excellent, excellent points. Um, it's good to talk to an expert. I would say, um, let's see, as far, I completely accept, I think I think you attributed that to Hick, the idea that overcoming obstacles, I mean, you know, I'm sure all of us have had to overcome certain things and whether it's undergoing the frustration, let's say learning to play music or, or, or to keep our health or to accomplish other goals or overcoming our own, say character flaws or whatever. So yes, that's absolutely true. You know, there's some truth and no pain, no gain. And as far as the point of um, overcoming, you said it's soul making. I mean, as far as Hick, was Hick soul making or overcoming obstacles? Or is those the same thing? Those are the same thing, right? Okay. It's, okay. Um, it's for your development, right? For your right. development as a person, there need to be challenges. There need to be right. things that you're confronted with. Right, right. But what's valuable in living a life is meeting all the challenges that get thrown at you. That's what part of what makes life meaningful, makes it worth living. Oh, very much. So, yeah. so then you get a justification for at least certain kinds. Right. Peoples. Right. No, definitely true. As far as the third one, uh, God is smarter than us, which I believe to be true. I guess in order for me to really embrace theism and to say God is smarter, um, I have to be committed and, and in a way that, you know, for me is reasonable. And I think it is. I think I have to be committed to the idea that even though I don't know all the details, that I do know, or at least I feel I have some type of metaphysical experience or whatever, that yes, that is what God's doing, goodwill, that it's like, I, I mean, like I said, I had very good parents, so, the, you know, I my childhood, oftentimes I was angry or frustrated, like, why are they doing that? But ultimately, as a child, I knew in my heart they loved me, and and they're doing this for my good, and that kind of, you know, carried me over all the frustrations of growing up. So, and and I think inevitably everyone has their Job moment, at least everything is like, why is this happening? So, um, yes, as long as in my mind, even though there's such terrible suffering in this world, but there is such terrible suffering in this world among, I mean, there's, of course, the natural miseries, but then there's the uh, miseries that people make for each other. And if you just look at those, the miseries people make for each other, there's no question that human beings in their worst moments do very bad things to other people and animals and the environment and everything else. And so it's reasonable to me. I, I don't see a suffering where I say there's nothing that anyone could have done to deserve that. And so I guess I, uh, yeah, I do believe that, that, that I may not know all the details in that sense, God is much smarter and, and all that. But, um, but I do feel I have a reasonable conviction that this person knows what they're doing. 
So I think the hardest case for that kind of approach is going to be, for example, infants that are born with Tay-Sachs syndrome. So right, right. they are born, they, they're not going to live more than a year or two, but they're in horrible agony the whole time and then they die. And it's very hard to look at that and think, I can see how the God in charge of this, why, you know, why they're permitting that. That seems really difficult. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a very familiar point. This is kind of Dostoevsky, the suffering. Yeah, children, the yeah that, point, that point is usually the point that's brought up. I mean, just talking to friends or talking to people, that's, yeah, the most common. And um, I, my reply would be that people who just find that uh, inscrutable are not really perhaps going deep enough into the idea that we are not the external body. And so within the worldview in which there's karma, which is typical of Hinduism and Buddhism, um, the baby is not a baby. I mean, it is, obviously. It has, it, it's a soul and a baby. But that's a body. Yeah. Yeah, a baby is not necessarily a symbol of purity and innocence. I'm used to give an example, which is kind of horrible, and, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but imagine in his next life, baby Hitler. And someone thinking that the fact that he's suffering some karma, like there's nothing this person. So the idea that, that again, the baby as a symbol of innocence and purity, I think really is not paying attention to one of the central ideas of this worldview, which is that the body is not the person. The person has a very long history. Okay, so I guess one of the the questions that you're going to get um, then will be about the reasons for thinking that people do have long histories, uh, <laughs> because because when you look at, I mean. And I can see how if you've already got to that point, then you can kind of reconcile, especially if you've got the story about karma. Of course, you can you can reconcile this now because um, whatever's happening to this person is something that, in some sense, they deserve. Right, right. Okay, I'll say that I'm personally, I'm not the type of person that could sort of stay with a spiritual tradition just because they, by, by let's say epistemic coherentism, just because let's say the picture they gave me is internally coherent, that would not keep me on board the ship. And so um, I am, full disclosure here, sort of a uh, a sworn foundationalist in terms of epistemology. And I really do believe that um, knowledge systems start with claims or, or beliefs and self-evident foundations. And we kind of build on that. I mean, obviously, I mean, the process by which we become cognizant of or believe in things, it goes in many directions. But I think ultimately, if you boil it all down, there is something underlying. And so, uh, you know, Aristotle's self-evident 
facts. And, and by the way, the term self-evident is a very interesting meeting point between, let's say, Aristotle and everything after him and, um, and some of these Vaishnava texts. For example, in the um, work called the Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is uh, probably the most, single most important biography, historical, I mean, giving, yeah, biography of, of Chaitanya, who's considered to be Krishna's avatar for this age, you find these specific terms, Svata Pramanyam, which means, you know, being evidence from itself. So the term self-evident. And I would, I would claim, I do claim, that um, my experiences within a spiritual practice have taken me, to my satisfaction anyway, beyond the point of simply believing doctrine or, you know, if it's coherent, that's good enough. And so I, I feel that I have uh, foundational reasons to, um, to accept this as true. And, uh, and all, you know, personal experiences and, um, and I think, you know, what do they call that? Um, ab somethingism. Anyway, it's going to the best explanation. Abduction. Yes, abduction. I'll, I'll claim here, you know, the, uh, I'll claim here my extent, my age, but yeah, abduction. I think that, um, I do appreciate the philosophical elegance, which I see in, 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 uh, karma theory and you know elegance is obviously not proof but it it is an attractive feature in many academic fields i i think it has parsimony and uh make it throw in one thing kind of unrelated but it sort of goes back to what we were talking before i feel that plantica's claim which apparently had some legs that um Belief in a good God is not logically impossible given the state of the world. I feel the problem there when I heard Plantinga's theory, I, I thought, yeah, well, I mean, I'm not arguing this logic, but I feel it doesn't pass and it doesn't pass Anselm's test in the sense of God being that being than whom there is no greater being. So I think it's much better. Like, let's say, for example, to preserve free will, you have to let people just do horrible things to other people because preserving free will is a greater good. Well, let's say in the karma universe, why not, if you're God, why not uh, match people? So let's say someone is about to exercise their free will to do something bad and another person, just in the common vernacular, has it coming by their karma, uh, karma, so so there there are no innocent people suffering because there's this sort of super sophisticated technology where people are matched, and um, so yeah, I, I mean the god of Plantago who who allows all kinds of suffering, which I take very seriously, um, just to say it's not logically impossible. That's nice, and I'm sure it's you know sort of a helping the cause in a sense of theism, but it's that would not be sufficient to bring me to dedicate my life to a God who was merely not logically impossible. Right. So I actually, I, I suspect that um, planting it wouldn't 
um, dispute what you said about abduction inference to the best explanation. But overall, what you the way that he gets to God too is going to be that way. I mean, he thinks he has. Um, perhaps he thinks that he has direct experience of God, or at least that other people that he knows whose testimony he trusts have direct experience of God. But I don't think that um, he's satisfied with, um, at, at any point really in his philosophy, with kind of mere logical um, possibility. Though he does think when he's replying to arguments from evil that it's enough to appeal to hypotheses that are logically right. possible if they're logical arguments from evil. Right, because a logical argument would rule out any alternatives. If I'm saying, look, there's just this inconsistency between God's existence, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect goodness, and the existence of evil, it will be enough if you can show that it's logically possible to have all of those things that will defeat the argument. Right. But when it comes to his worldview, I don't think that he's going to. I don't think that he's going to be very far away from you. He's going to think that. Uh, there's a bunch of things, part of which is a kind of, for him, the kind of internal witness of the Holy Spirit or something like that. He just kind of knows in his heart that there's a God, and that's very important. But all the other evidence that he's got sort of fits together to make the kind of the most plausible worldview from his perspective. Right. Okay, thank you. I mean, that was, I appreciate that. But I would, I mean, I guess <laughs> you can take Planticus part here, because you obviously know much more about him than I do, but it seems to me, and I do appreciate Planticus, I mean, I, I admire much of what he does, what he has done, and I, I have great respect for his, his work. But still, let's say we accept, okay, it's not logically impossible, and on the positive side, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit or something. It seems to me we're still not out of the woods philosophically in the sense that we do have logical possibility, but we still don't have, as far as I can see, a good explanation of what's going on in the world. Right, and um, go going back to what I said before, uh, I think that a very common view is to think that you're asking, for, amongst Christian philosophers, is to think that you're asking for too much if you want to know what the actual explanation is. Um, I mean, God has his reasons and we're not going to know what they are. And it's so maybe at this point we could go back and talk a little bit more about freedom, right? Because at the start, freedom. that was something that you wanted to say was quite important. In the right. Can I just say one thing about what you just said? Yeah. And then I'll be happy to go on yeah, to the next sure. one. And that is that... This is personal now, I guess, since we're talking about God, I, you know, I have to confess. And <laughs> But I think myself personally, um, I don't think I would be satisfied with that. I am, um, in a sense, I, I am, you know, obviously I dedicated my life to spiritual things, but I am still, I think, very much a rationalist. And, and, and I'm much more attracted to the Logos idea that, you know, there's this perfect rationality in the mind of God. It's invested in the creation. Therefore, there can be science and there, you know, there can be all theologies. And that, therefore, I think that 
in my own relationship with God, as I understand it, I think one of the, I mean, one of the things I most appreciate is the freedom and the ability to be re, to be rational and, and, you know, faithful, but also rational. And so I don't think I could really just hang in there forever. I mean, maybe at some level, but I couldn't really be as committed as I think I am if it was just ultimately handed over to inconceivability. So, so maybe there's, sorry, here's one hypothesis about the difference here, which has to do with the eschatology, right, where things are going to go. Because I think from the Eastern perspective, the aim is to achieve enlightenment, but then that's kind of the end point. Whereas for someone like Plantinga, the whole thing is future directed to a better state where, um, you know, there's kind of perfection rules. And that, well, actually, might, actually, that, that might make a difference on the point that we're now discussing. Well, actually, Vaishnavism is from the word Vishnu, which is often etymologized to mean the all-pervading Lord from the Sanskrit verb Vish to enter. But interestingly, it's very different than sort of the common view of Eastern religions. And it's Rudolf Otto, who was a, you must know Otto. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, he was a German theologian who was important in the early 20th century yeah. and who dis kind of discovered Vaishnavism, which is actually, according to scholars, about you know two-thirds or three-fourths of all Hindus. And it's, it's, it's about love. It's about devotion. The ultimate goal is not just a serene, rational understanding but or enlightenment where you just kind of behold or experience something, but it's very much an active, loving relationship. And so in that sense... I think, in fact, I mentioned Otto because he was kind of struck and, and, and startled because in those days, you know, Europe's theological mission in India was just to convert people to the real religion. And he was kind of startled because he found a very philosophically, theologically sophisticated theism, which wasn't on their map, on their conversion map. And... Um, and so, yeah, ultimately, the ultimate goal is love. In fact, there's this one statement, uh, pure love, that prema pumarata mahan, that the ultimate goal for human beings is pure love. Love of God, love of all of God's creatures. So so, so that, in, in one sense of ultimate goal, that sounds kind of right. Um, but there's a kind of goal. Um, maybe this is, maybe I'm kind of mixing together a little bit Buddhism and Hinduism at this point. Of getting off the wheel, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and you know the yeah the wheel, the samsara chakra, the wheel of. But in the Vaishnava tradition, which is the big winner, I taught a course on the history of Indian religion at, at University of Florida, and a couple times, and um, India was this amazing open marketplace of of ideas of and. You know, no inquisitions, no people were just free. I mean, you have Buddhism, which started in India and which openly rejected the Vedas, like the holiest books. Nah, you know, they aren't really, that's not really the truth. Which in, in Europe, you know, your your lifespan could probably be measured in seconds. You know, in medieval Europe, you went around talking like that about the Bible. And so, and yet, and Buddhism spread and Jainism also, which believes in an eternal soul and reincarnation, but not in God. 
and have they have their own books. And so these other religions spread and, and they did, didn't really have wars about it. And, and so there was this tremendous freedom. And yet in that open marketplace, you could say, of metaphysical ideas, the big winner was Krishna. And so the Bhagavad Gita is, um, you know, this even the Hindu associations, I'll say the single most important scripture they have, the Bhagavad Gita spoken by Krishna. And they have two great epics, which are Mahabharata and Ramayana, both about Krishna, his different avatars and so on. And so this personal devotion where you're cultivating love in a yoga system, bhakti yoga, and, you know, selfless love for God. Uh, and not, to, in fact, it's a very strong point in the Vaishnav teachings, again, from the word Vishnu, is that if you are moksha kama, which means seeking your own liberation, that's mundane because you're still seeking a selfish goal. And you're not truly liberated until you have no selfish goals and out of love, you really just want to please the beloved with no ulterior motive. And so that seeking of nirvana, which is, uh, or, 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 or moksha or whatever, is itself an obstacle to ultimate liberation or the highest knowledge. Okay, so this just sounds like a story where there's, there's a goal, but you can't pursue it directly. You have to pursue it by an indirect technique. But it's still not wrong to say that there's an ultimate goal. It's just one that you can't have for yourself. It's well, like, so, so think about it from a third person perspective. Okay. What I want for you, right? Is, um, that, that you get off the wheel, right? That's, <laughs> what, I for, that's what I want for everybody else, <laughs> uh, even if I can't want it for myself because that's going to frustrate, you know, right? However, however, if I want to help you off the wheel then I'm not really paying attention because what I really want for you is for you to experience your, God, I sound like a preacher now. What I really want for you is for you to experience your own purest, happiest self. And in fact, there's a, there's a, uh, a verse in the Bhagavatam that says, Sorgapa Varga Narakesha Pituliyartha Darshana, that, Someone who is really advancing, uh, they really don't care if they are technically in a liberated state or if they are even in some, you know, lower world in this universe or whatever, because everywhere they look, they only see their beloved. And so, I mean, you're right in a sense. I don't want to just dance around. I mean, you're right. There is a desire for freedom, for, for liberation. But liberation is understood to mean surrendering to love where you're always thinking of the good of the other and not thinking about yourself. And so let's say if I'm, if, if I'm responsible to teach someone that I'm trying to get off the wheel, then um, if that person is really focused on their own liberation, then I'm either I'm not doing my job or they're not really paying attention. And so... I mean, I understand there's a sort of a subtle psychology. How do you pursue non-pursuit or how do you dedicate yourself to not being selfish? And I think the reason it works, even though it may sound like a sort of a philosophical tongue twister, I think the reason it ultimately works is that uh, 
it's true in the sense that let's say I'm starting my practice and I'm still kind of selfish or vain or whatever I am, but I, but I've, let's say intellectually or just philosophically, or maybe something deep in my heart tells me this is what you really should do. And so as I advance, as I'm making progress, I find that uh, I don't really care about the geography. Like, where am I going in my next life? Am I going to heaven? Am I coming back here? It's like, don't sweat the geography. I, I can say in my own life, I hope I don't sound like I'm bragging because I'm <laughs> quite aware of my own imperfections, but I can say in my own life, I, I, I never think about that. Like when I leave this body, when I die, am I going to go to the spiritual world? Or am I going to come back? I can honestly say that I, don't, I never think about that because what I think about is, wow, I've got all this great service I can do. And it, it's just so rewarding to you know try to help people. And so, so you sort of grow into a state where that's just your experience, that you don't really want anything. You just want your service is so satisfying. So that's, that's interesting. I wonder about the extent to which there's um, something similar going on in the Abrahamic religions. Um, I think there is. Where you, you do end up with some practitioners of the religions are just really focused on the next life in a way that, to their detriment, right, because they don't live well in this life. And there are other people who are in, in the same traditions whose focus is more on pursuing the good and sort of the story that from within the religion that you'll tell about them is that they're the ones that will actually end up. Yes. Without question, I think there were, you know, people in, in, you know, many people in Judaism, Christianity and Islam who experienced, I think without question, real love of God. And in fact, there's one famous uh, uh, Sufi mystic, I think, that said that, that if I want to go to heaven for my happiness, may I never go there. And, and so, yeah, definitely this idea, which, which spread, you know, it's the Bhakti tradition in India, the Sufis cultivated that, at least some branches of them. In Islam, there are absolutely Jewish and Christian mystics who had realizations of this, who understood it's really about love, loving God, not salvationism, not just trying to save your neck. Absolutely. And then on the ground, it's sort of like, you know, the great theologically unwashed. I mean, even in Hinduism, I mean, I mean, many, many, many Hindus, I, I'm tempted to say the majority want to get blessings. You know, they, they're, they go to this, you know, God or that goddess. And it's really all about making your life better and, or, or being liberated. And so I think, I, I think that's in terms of socio-historically in, I think in most major religions, you find a lot of people who are just pursuing their self-interest as they perceive it, sometimes in rather mundane ways, but, you know, piously. And then there are mystics and there are yogis, and, you know, they don't use that word yogi, but in all these religions who really did discover love of God and who really understood, you know, what I've been saying. So it's absolutely not just something exclusive to one tradition. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. It's, you kind of need to distinguish between 
the mystics, the theologians, and what you call <laughs> the great unwashed, the other <laughs> because because when we're talking about how people are thinking about these issues, it depends which class they belong to, which one mm. groups they belong That's to. That's absolutely thinking about absolutely them. absolutely. That's one of the things I really like about the Gita, which I infomercial I translated recently, but um, and that is. It doesn't talk about, let's say, Hindus, Christians, Jews. It rather talks about different universal categories. For example, there's what's called the karmi, because the word karma from the Sanskrit root kri, which also is cognate with English words like create and, and increase and so on. And so it means to do or make. And so karma has various meanings. It also commonly means just the work you do in this world, you know, your vocation or just your duties in this world. And uh, it's more of a duty-based worldview rather than rights-based. And so a karmi, which is a common word found in the Gita often, means someone that's focused on worldly duties for worldly gain, for themselves, for their family, for humanity, whatever. And then there's, so you pray, you make offerings because you, you want to be prosperous, you know, Sunday morning television. You want to be prosperous, you want to be healthy, you want your loved ones to be healthy and prosperous, that kind of thing. Then there's the jnani, jnana cognate with gnosis, the, the one who pursues knowledge, the philosopher or the intellect, the scholar, who's trying to understand the absolute truth, whatever that may be, or the source of everything. And then you finally, you have the, the karmi, the jnani, the yogi into mysticism of various kinds. And then ultimately the bhakta, the person who really just is, you know, all about love of God. And I think these categories are found in every Every religion that's big enough to kind of get a full spread, statistical spread of human types, I think. And these are the categories Krishna talks about. Krishna really doesn't talk about sectarian different religions in that sense. He's talking about. And so I think definitely you find these approaches in, in, in every religion that's big enough to get the full assortment. Okay, so one, one question I now want to ask you is, so this is a kind of question about Hicks religious pluralism whether you think that um, there's something special about the practices, you know, that you're embedded in, or whether it really doesn't matter which of the religions you pick so long as you're engaged in the yeah. practice. As they used to say in Jane Austen's time, that is a home question. <laughs> so um, I would say, well, definitely our view is a type of, we believe there is a um, inclusive hierarchy. So I think on two, so maybe I'll map out the two extremes, you know, in our mind, two extremes, and how we naturally think we're in the sweet spot in the center. <laughs> is that, uh, so for me, one extreme would be um, just fanaticism, where we have the only way, this is the only true God, you're worshiping a false God, a dead God, a this, a that, which I think is really like, come on, you can't you do better than that? So to me, that's just silly fanaticism. I think there's another extreme, which I think dialectically, kind of the one extreme produced the other. And that is what I call metaphysical relativism, which in a sense, is a position held in a sense just as fanatically, I think. 
where nothing is allowed to be a higher truth than anything else. And everyone has their own God and everyone has their own truth. And it's, it's kind of postmodern in a sense. And, and, and I see it as an abandoning, an abandoning of, of reason in the sense that in India, they didn't kill each other over these theological, philosophical disagreements. And I think it's very healthy, just like in philosophy and biology and history. I think it's very healthy to have respectful, reasonable debate. And it enhances, I think, everyone that participates. As we know now, politically, it's becoming very hard for that. But so India actually has a, you know, a very old tradition of people respectfully debating and critiquing each other. And uh, so I would claim, of course, I have to defend it, that it's <laughs> another thing that that in the Vaishnav tradition, uh, there is, in a sense, a, a high point of reasonable theology. And uh, it's like if you're in school, you take different levels of math or different levels of whatever subject. And it's not that the other levels are wrong or bad or evil. They're just. So, so that that's the claim I think we would make. And of course, we'd have to. And, and because it's not a fanatical claim, we're saying that objectively there is more information or whatever, so it has to be defended. And, you know, to, to claim that, okay, this is a an advanced knowledge of something, is, is it's a claim that you can at least argue about. Whereas if I say, no, we have the living God, you have the dead God, you know, where, where do you go from, from there? Okay, so one of the things, one of the things that you just said, which is, was interesting, is comparing the kind of historical tolerance in India with um, a record of lesser tolerance, say, <laughs> in, uh, say in Christian Europe. Um, but so what I wanted to ask you about was the extent to which the religion was bound up with politics and mm. rule because the... I mean, in, in Western Europe, uh, between them, the kind of the monarchs, the nobility and the religious leaders ruled, right? And they, they were the rich and the powerful. And I wondered whether, and so, and challenges to the religion were challenges to them and their, mm. their yes, world yes. And power and so on. Yes. Uh, so I'm wondering whether there was a difference in that respect with the history in India that might go some way towards explaining yeah. uh, why there was greater tolerance because you didn't have the same nexus between, yes. um, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of religion and state, but it's more than that because it's a kind of alliance of all of the kind of rich and powerful. Yes. No, it's a great question. It's a, it's a really good question. And... Um, I'll just quote the Spanish, you know, the, the Spanish motto during, you know, La Conquista, when they were, you know, colonizing places was La Cruz y la Espada, you know, the cross and the sword. Mm -hmm. And um, so fortunately, if you look at, let's say, the probably the oldest and best sustained description of what life was like in ancient India is the Mahabharata, which is that huge work. And... Uh, 
What I find very interesting about the Mahabharata and also the other great epic history, the Ramayana, the story of Rama, and also the Bhagavatam, which is extremely important, extremely influential book in Indian history. Number one, there are no religious institutions. And there are definitely, there's a lot of shared culture. There's a lot of agreement, like some people, let's say, are devoted to Shiva. Some people are devoted to Vishnu or Krishna. So there definitely are spiritual communities, but these spiritual communities or, or religious communities, some of them weren't so spiritual, but they're religious communities, uh, they share a lot of common culture. And so someone could, let's say, uh, be devoted to Vishnu or someone is devoted to Shiva or to the goddess Shakti and so on. But they share this common culture and they share all kinds of assumptions about the nature of reality. It's almost like, I was going to give an example of electing a president in this country, but it's God only knows what's going to happen in this country. But, but let's say a few years back when there was some traces of civilization here. And so there would be different candidates. And even though they would you know, criticize each other and argue, but they had a huge foundation of shared values, like we have to follow the Constitution and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so there are no religious institutions. If you look later on, you have, interestingly in India, you have the insertion into India of two very, I would say, you know, sectarian, fanatical religious traditions. First with the Muslim invasions roughly a thousand years ago, and uh, who explicitly declared they wanted to destroy indigenous Indian culture and looked upon all the Hindus as heathens and blasphemers and idol worshippers and everything, which kind of wasn't so nice. And then, of course, they were followed by the English. And so that's kind of, you know, what effect did that have dialectically when you have this sudden insertion of these sort of uh, fanatical... I make a distinction, actually, which I think is relevant here to answer your question. And that is a distinction which is often not made, but must be made between philosophical monotheism and tribal monotheism. And, you know, I'm sure you get the picture. And, and so what you have coming, I mean, Tacitus is very concerned in, in his annals and uh, about the tribal monotheism that's coming in to the empire. And so India, I think, had a, had a philosophical monotheism. And let's say I'm worshiping Krishna or I'm devoted to Krishna and other people Maybe the you know the runner-up, the silver medalist in Indian history was Shiva. And so, but in the Vaishnav texts, the the most important, there's there is extraordinary respect and even reverence given to Shiva. So it's not that I'm worshiping the living God, you're worshiping the dead God. Yes, Krishna's great, Shiva's great. However, they're they're, you know, and so you'd argue about that. Who's the greatest? And even a type of, there's even a type of uh, Anselm argument about God as that being in whom there's no, you find that actually about 500 years ago in India, those arguments being given about comparing the qualities and, and the, but there's an acceptance. Someone worships the goddess as supreme. There's a Daivi, Devi Bhagavata. There's Bhagavata is about Krishna. Then there's a Devi Bhagavata to compete with it, a Bhagavata, but which has the goddess as a center. And yet, all the Vaishnavas, those who worship Vishnu, they all offer their reverence to the goddess. And, and so there's this huge shared platform in which everyone is honoring 
the other's object of worship, but they're kind of debating over who's ultimately numero uno. So I think it is very different. I think it's a very, very different uh, cultural. So it sounds, it sounds in some ways a little bit closer to what the pagan Mediterranean world. Very much. Like, the Greeks and the, and, and the Romans, at least until the Romans in, introduced this sort of cult of the emperor. That, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Very much. I sometimes call a Greco-Roman religion, Mediterranean Hinduism. And and not only the linguistic, of course, you know, it's Indo-European language, but 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 the the similarities in the approach, let's say, and it's often said that for the Romans, worshiping their gods was just a civic duty. They didn't really care what, what your holy of holies was. And so um yeah, I mean striking similarities. I mean the word Jupiter is Sanskrit. Because Jew in, or, you know, the English say Jew, like do your duty, but Jew is a heaven and Peter is father, you know, paternal. And so Jupiter is a father of heaven. So, yeah, I think there are very strong and just really startling connections there. And, and, and their approach to omens, to, let's say, theistic pluralism, to, to, to so many things. In fact, there was, you know, the, the, the interpretatio greco. The Greek interpretation, which was that, um, you know, we're all worshiping the same divine. We call it different names. They may have, you know, we may disagree a little about the hierarchy, but, you know, we're all in the same ballpark here. Okay. Um, so I'd like to go back and talk a bit more about freedom. <laughs> Please. So you said that you... Freedom's an important value. Uh, I wondered how you're thinking about freedom, whether mm. you're th whether you're kind of compatibilist. So you think that, um, you know, I mean, the way that, say, for example, John Mackey thinks about this, God could have made a world where everyone always freely chooses the good. Right? Whether you're thinking about freedom in a way that's <laughs> compatible with that or not. Uh, no, I, I mean, the idea that God could have created a world where everyone chooses good to me is a non-starter. I, I think it's just not taking seriously the idea of freedom. If I'm programmed, if you tell me I'm free, but I'm programmed where I, I'm on tracks, it's like when I was a little kid, probably you too, and you go to the amusement park and there's this little car you sit in. And when you're a little kid, you think you're actually driving it, <laughs> but it's really on tracks. And then when you get older, you realize, I wasn't really driving that car. And so to me, that's Mackie. You know, I'm kind of on virtue tracks, but somehow I'm free. And so I, I just don't see it as. Right. So, so you're thinking that there has to be this kind of ability to do otherwise at sort of yes. every, every point where you're making a free choice or performing a free action. There's something else that you could have done in the very circumstances like hold all of history fixed up to that point you go one way but you could have gone a different yeah. way whereas and and you think if you don't have that you don't have freedom whereas somebody like Mackie thinks look so long as i own the action so long as it's mine it's coming from my beliefs and desires and so on it's free it doesn't matter whether i'm on rails or not 
No, but it, it's but not. That's, that's Mikey's view. That's that's like saying that I program a computer. Let's say I program a robot, and then I say, no, the robot is you know choosing to do that, even though I programmed it. So Mackie, with all due respect, I mean, I don't want to be rude to Mackie, but I, I think it's like really barking up the wrong tree here. Because it, it's his concept of freedom is something that I can't recognize as freedom. And and to me, if I wasn't free, I wouldn't be a person. In fact, I wouldn't, I mean, what would I be if I'm programmed to be nice and programmed to this and that? And like you were saying, actually, I, I think Mackie runs crashes into something that I think Hicks said, if I get this right and correct me if I'm wrong, that um that there are challenges that make you a better person. And so if I if I mean I've learned not to do certain things, you know, it's like that great quote from Mark Twain. He said, when I was a young man, I realized my parents didn't understand anything about life. So I left home came back a few years later and I was amazed at how much they'd learned in my absence. So, you know, I can, I mean, I appreciate so much. I mean, not everything, but a lot of things my parents tried to teach me and I knew better and I was, you know, know it all. And then you realize, well, actually that's right. And so, and it's very deep. It's when you learn, like my father, you say, you know, I went to the school of hard knocks. And so when you go to the school of hard knocks, you really learn, you, you never forget again. I think that's God's intention is that what's the, you know, so that your salvation going to heaven or whatever you call it, it's not a revolving door so that we really earn it. And, you know, it's when you earn things and you're forced to earn them, you really appreciate it. It really means a lot to you. Whereas when something's just given to you, it's, yeah. So I think Mackie is just really being inconsistent there. Okay, so now I want to know how to put this together with the story that you told about karma, where um, God could put somebody that God knew was going to do an evil act together with yeah. somebody who had it coming to them, right? Because if God knows what you're going to do, then aren't you on rails? Good point. That 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 was that is the point. Yeah, I would say that. Um, um, because, you know, it, it's a very common argument that God knows everything, but not the future because we have free will yeah. and so on. Yeah. And, and somehow God's divine knowledge of what we're going to do somehow means we're not making free choices. So I'll say a few words on that. As you probably suspected, I'll say a few words on that. that uh, um, first of all, I think I understand the force of the argument against God's future knowledge, although one little stumbling block I have with it is that it's not really shown to me how knowledge is causal. Like, let's say, for example, um, I know that, well, again, it's a different kind of knowledge. Maybe it's not as absolute. The sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. In fact, I can find out what time it is and so on. So, I know the sun's going to rise, but that doesn't mean I'm making it rise. And so if you ask, how do I know the sun is going to rise? Well, because the sun obeys certain physical laws, which we take to be enforced. And so you could say, well, 
But if God knows what I'm going to do, and then, and also I want to just throw this in. I think there's a qualitative difference between knowing what I'm going to do, let's say 20 years from now, and I'm going to do five minutes from now or something, or, 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 or six months from now. It's like, you know, it's a common saying, well, there he goes again. And so I, I think we flatter ourselves sometimes that we are not predictable. And I think there's a type of vanity of thinking that one is not predictable. And, and I think there is, in other words, I would say there is an area where God doesn't know what we're going to do, but that's more an area where people are acting very freely and, and the extent to which someone is conditioned. Like, for example, I board a plane and I made that decision freely, but then once I'm on the plane, there are consequences to that decision. And, and we all know what the consequences are, assuming the plane doesn't crash. So, if we have strong or, or let's say let me let me put this another way okay let's say well not me let's say someone killed someone and and karma is going to get them they're going to be killed because it's like quid pro quo justice and so there's someone who is who wants to kill someone and you could say well god couldn't know that they really that if somehow god matches those people there's always a chance the person wouldn't have killed the bad karma person, but but somehow God made it happen because he had to get this person killed. So that's I, I mean I think I'm I think I'm fairly representing the challenge. Yeah, I mean I'm one thing you could say as well there'll be other opportunities, right? So God could just <laughs> line, up, line up a series of meetings with the persons. <laughs> Good point. I'm, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Definitely going to use that. No, it's true. Uh, yeah, let, let's say I'm like really a person who really wants to kill someone. And then, you know, the uh, when it comes down to it, I chicken out. Okay, you know, bring in another candidate. I, I, that's great. I mean, I really owe you for that. I, I think that's really good. That's really a great point. So the... Um one way of making the point, I mean, the, the kind of general point a bit sharper because you asked about causation, would be if you think, as planting it does, that when God creates, God chooses an entire possible world, sort of past, present, and future, all at once. Right. Plantica says that? Yeah, so this is his view about creation. Right? So, so, for example, what, what aspects, let's say Earth, in the last, let's say, from a few thousand years ago to a few thousand years in the future, what are the what are the items that were planned? Absolutely everything, right? So, so, but the way it works is um, for planting it because he's a Molinist. He thinks that prior to creation, God knew for every possible person, for every possible circumstance in which they might be placed, what they would do if they were placed in those circumstances. And so he thinks that it's consistent with God's just choosing the entire world, that we act freely from moment to moment. Does Plantinga have a strong or a weak free will? For so, he th so his view about free will is that you could have done otherwise, right, because the counterfactuals are creaturely freedom. That's what he calls them, these, you know, what, what God's middle knowledge consists in, his knowledge about what. Free people will freely do when placed in you know, particular circumstances. Um, okay. 
right? So he thinks you've got he's got that to start with, and because he's got that knowledge, um, it's but it's all contingent knowledge, right? Because the, you know, because I'm a free agent, I could I it could have been that I was going to do something else. It's just that as it happens, were he to put me in those circumstances, that's what I would do. Now I worry that this really isn't freedom because that stuff happened in the past god made that decision and now here i am about to act is there anything else i can actually do given all of the history and the answer is going to be no right there's nothing else i can do it's true that right back at the beginning if the counterfactuals have been different i would have been going to do something different but that doesn't mean that now actually here and now i can do something else could so, you just briefly say what he means by counterfactuals oh if if such and such person were placed in such and such circumstances they would do such and such that's a counterfactual claim it's a, if it were the case that this it would be the case that that and all of these counterfactuals are of the form if this possible person was placed in these possible circumstances they would do this so is in Plantinga's system, does God have any intention or purpose? In other words, or, or is he just giving everyone a free shot, but he knows they're going to choose this? Or is he kind of setting things up a certain way? So, so he's deciding which world is going to be the world that he makes. So on this view, God just makes a single world and it's got to be a good enough world. Maybe it's the best world that God can make. Because he's constrained oh God, by because he's constrained by what all these pe possible people would do, and it might be that all of them are just going to do horrible things, right? Okay, but okay, how? Let me put in here uh, 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 an idea from Vaishnava wisdom, and I and I, I'd like to hear from you, like where that fits in all this. First of all, like I said, the the Vaishnava view would find planted kind of claustrophobic in the sense that it's so geocentric. And um, so the view here, and this is found throughout these literatures, there are many worlds, there are many worlds, inhabited worlds, with, and, 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 you know, basically high, middle, and lower class. So there are sort of heavenly realms. There's the idea of a heavenly realm, which is not spiritual. It's just a heavenly material realm. Everyone's beautiful. Everyone has extraordinary longevity and they're really nice people most of the time. And, and then you kind of have the earth, which is sort of seen as the middle because we see really beautiful, wonderful things in this world. And we see a lot of horrible things. So the earth is kind of seen as a middle thing. And then there's sort of hellish worlds where it's, it's really bad, even much worse than here. And then people kind of rotate. They, they, they're going not only through bodies, but through worlds. And, and the ultimate purpose of this is so, you know, experience everything, get it all out of your system, make all your choices, satisfy all your curiosity. And if you're ready to come back home, you know, call me. Here's my number. And so, but it's, I mean, God, I, I think actually, although, I mean, it, it's not like every creation, everyone does exactly the same thing as the last one. But there's kind of a basic template. There is sort of a sort of a generic universe, which which really has infinite variety and high and low and middle, and and there's tremendous freedom. So, how does that map onto Plantinga's conception? So I think not very well, because I mean I, I I think that that on that kind of standard. So, I mean there there are some 
Christian theists who think that God made many universes. But they, there's no connection between them. It's just that there's lots of universes. But the standard view, I think, for a long time has been that God makes just one universe. It might be full of populated planets, or maybe this is the only planet where um, there's a population of um, anything like human beings. Um, that's kind of up in the air. But there's nothing like the view that you just described where, um, you know, it's kind of... A, there are different levels and you can level up or level down depending on what you do. There's nothing like that, I don't think, in, in, well, well, in that, any kind of standard Christian worldview. Yeah, well, well, getting back to the, I mean, tying what you just said into, um, well, I guess, you know, the view of, of, of reincarnation or not. From my point of view or our point of view, if I'm speaking for the tradition, I got this right. Um, it seems practically absurd to give a soul, let's say, who's now appearing as a human, and life, you know, we have so many desires, and life is complicated, and we're works in progress and all that, and to give the soul like a few years to clean it all, you know, and, and just, I mean, it, it seems to me just from the point of view of psychology and human nature, that most people need a lot more time to really work through all their desires. And, 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 and so this idea where it's all about salvation, one thing I find interesting when you had these horrific Protestant Catholic wars and, you know, the horrible things are going on. And if you look at the theological debates they were having, like, what were they really arguing about? It wasn't about church corruption. That was just a, that was a trigger, not a, a perpetual issue. It was really about salvation. In other words, they were obsessed with how are you saved? And then, you know, Calvin said this and Luther said that and, and Rome said the other thing. It was just everyone's trying to save their neck. And, and, and the idea from my point of view that if you just believe a right doctrine, you're saved is absurd because yeah, believing a right doctrine is a good start, but you have to earn it. You have to. And, and this idea that um, you can't save yourself, like nothing you can do increase will increase. To me, it's like, I mean, okay, I don't want to be rude here, but it just seems really off the rails because it's how can you, I mean, if you're a good parent or if I'm a good parent, I teach my children to earn things. And if you, if you tell your children, okay, you just believe something about me and I'll give you all the candy you want and all the toys you want and you don't have to do well in school and you don't have to you just, you know. I mean, I think my own experience, it, it takes a while to really work out all the junk inside of me and um, to really become, you know, the soul I know I could be. And so I think it's much too short a time frame and people get second chances and third chances, you know, and a million chances. And if you love someone, you never give up on them. You know, you just, you have to pay for what you did. You know, what do they say that, you know, one of those cute American expressions, you know, do the crime, serve the time or something. But so there's justice, there's reward and punishment, but there's never a point where God says, okay, I've had it. I've given you enough chances. You're done. I can't imagine any loving parent. So, so there are different versions of Christianity do have ways of accommodating some of this, right? Right. So, of so course. There was, so there was purgatory, right? 
as a kind of halfway house for people who <laughs> didn't get it done quickly enough. So what um, do you do in purgatory? Um, so, I mean, in a way, that would make it a realm a bit like your, you know, it's not, it's not kind of quite like here, but it, presumably it can't be too different because you're just getting a lot more time to sort things out. So before the ultimate determination about where you're going, whether you're going to hell or heaven on, you know, on one version of the view. Um, but in that purgatory, for example, do you, do you have like real life experience, like in this world, for I example? Think so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. I, I, uh, but there's also a kind of big, there are quite discrepant views about salvation too. So there are universalists who think that everybody gets saved and it's kind of, there's a lot of detail that's not filled in about what happens between the end of this life and the, and your kind of entry into heaven. Uh, and maybe some ways of filling that detail in will make it a bit more like the picture that you were sketching. I don't know. Um, but then there are other views on which, I mean, as you know, views like it's already determined who's going to heaven and who's going to Oh, God. Hell. Um, you know, all kind. there's a quite, a quite a variety of views. There are nice features of the story that you've been telling. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's, um, I mean, it's fascinating what you're saying. I really appreciate it. And one thing I just want to get in is that it is such a pleasure to talk to you because I had another experience of a so-called debate with, and it was just like, anyway, it was not possible to have a rational discussion. So I, I really, really appreciate talking to you. So thank you. So how are we going for time, Regina? We can't hear you. He's choked up. Oh, yeah, yeah you okay. got to turn your yeah. YouTube says we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. So if we were going to keep it to 90, yeah. we've got another 10 minutes. Yeah, so I'm starting to flag a little bit. Okay, so right. Just, just well, that's one of our standard conversion techniques, food. But <laughs> 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 right, well, I'm going to go, have to go and have something to eat. Okay, right. Just quickly on that point of uh, reasons for believing and, you know, the reincarnation and karma model, I'm, I'm actually preparing for a debate on another channel on evidence for reincarnation. So there's a fair bit of interesting stuff in the form of children who report memories for past lives where, you know, they have, they can have birthmarks sometimes, which matches a bullet entry and exit point, which is quite precise. And they'll report details about these lives that are, turn out to be accurate for a deceased individual. And I mean, that's just a little trailer on it. Obviously there's books written on it. There could be a whole, whole discussion just on that one subject, but uh, there's some interesting evidence for it is the point. And I assume that there's lots of contestation of the, the Yeah, there, there's some pushback on it. I'm I'm personally not convinced by the, the skeptical arguments, but I imagine other people will be. Yeah. Which is kind of par for the course, these whole areas like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh so were there any other final points or there was a lot of just um philosophy, you know, you know, questions about the Harry Krishna theology and a little bit on the problem of evil, but it's interesting stuff. Well, I think we did. I think we, you know, we may have gone around, but I think we did situate it within a, you know, a serious context. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do appreciate uh, what Graham did. I, I thought he really had some great questions, made a lot of nice. Questions. So I, I, yeah, I'm grateful for the discussion. 
I've enjoyed the discussion too. I've learned some things as well. Okay, we should let this poor guy eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I haven't had lunch yet either, and it's nearly three o'clock. But I'm enjoying this. I, I, yeah, anyway, um, so is that, are those all your final points? And we will wrap it up. Yeah, I yeah. Think I'm, 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 I'm done. Cool. So <laughs> thanks for tuning in. If you like this sort of stuff, be sure to subscribe so you can see more of it. Uh, help us out on the algorithm by hitting the like button and letting us know what you think down in the comments and you can suggest future discussions. Uh, Harry Krishna, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.